Hello, welcome everyone to Our Scar Speak. My name is Christina Miner. I am the host of this podcast. And before we begin, I'm going to give the disclaimer that we are not trying to be medical professionals or mental health professionals or any type of professional that you may see. We are not telling you to go against your treatment plan. Make for sure you listen to your doctors. Um, but we're definitely here to provide support and education from our perspective and our experiences. And that is all with that. Um, so today we have Kimberly Bowles, who is absolutely phenomenal. Um, I met her a while ago, I think just through social media, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, I posted my flat picture and she has just truly been, been an inspiration as far as what I dealt with, with going with flat, but I'm not going to say what her journey is. I'm going to let her definitely talk about it throughout the podcast, but welcome Kimberly. I, I'm great to have, I love having you here today. Thanks for having me, Christina. Yeah. So we're just going to get right into it. And usually I ask, which is the first question, who is Kimberly? Besides being, you know, the advocate that you are and the founder of an organization that's amazing that you are, who are you? What do you want the people to know about you as a person? Hmm. Well, I'm a mother of two children aged um, almost eight and just turned 10. Um, I'm a wife. Uh, to my husband of about 15 years, um, live in Pittsburgh. Um, I'm a, si a sister, uh, I'm a daughter. Um, I'm a friend. <laughs> I, 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 I did my, um, I got my degree in chemistry back in the day, back wow. before I was a mom and before I had cancer. So that was my previous life was doing, doing science. Um, wow. that was my previous life. Uh, Okay. Yeah. I'm a swimmer. I um, enjoy swimming. <clears throat> wow. Uh, back before my back surgery, I used to enjoy running and stuff like that. But and then I had a collapsed disc and that will put the kibosh on that. <laughs> um, put the it. kibosh on a lot of stuff. Um, <laughs> what else? Uh, I'm an artist. Um, I'm a visual artist. So I do a lot of illustration. I'm working right now on an illustration for a friend whose whippets do um, com uh, competitive racing and oh, wow. different competition sports so I'm, I'm working on a logo for her for them um okay. what else? that's about it I live a pretty boring routine life actually <laughs> it doesn't sound that boring at all <laughs> <laughs> you make logos okay so you're a visual artist so it's like a natural <laughs> gift for you then yeah I've always been I've always been a visual artist ever since I was a kid wow that's impressive so before breast cancer, Kimberly, what I know you, I did hear you say you were chem, you went to school for chemistry, correct? So you were a chemist. Um, yeah. So tell us a little bit about life before, because as you know, like we just talked a few minutes ago, people always want to know what was life during and now, but not so much before. And I like what you said, like, what was life? But, you know, sometimes we forget because we get so caught up in the now and what we've been doing. But if you could just kind of tell us a little bit about what, how is life going before you got the diagnosis, even if it's a couple of days before? Well, so I was diagnosed when I had a baby and a young toddler. So wow. I was in the thick of young, early motherhood. And I was thought I was doing reasonably well with it. Mm -hmm. um, I had just had my second baby. She was about 10 months old when I was diagnosed. I was still breastfeeding her. Um, yeah. You know, I had decided I had a very difficult first baby. He was um, a bottle refuser. He, uh, you know, didn't sleep very well at night. So I had a, a rough, a rough time of it with the first baby. We didn't have family nearby to help out. So, I mean, I had, I had this supportive spouse, which was, which mm -hmm. was great. Um, but it was, it was challenging. New motherhood is always challenging, I think. Um, wow. So but then I decided to have a second baby and then boom, cancer. <laughs> wow. So if you don't mind me asking, how old were you when you got, when you were diagnosed? I was 35. 35. Okay. And so your second baby did you find out why you were pregnant or did you find out like after, like, how did you find out? 10 months, 10 months postpartum. I found out. Wow. I found the lump. So you just found the lump. So you had been doing self exams and everything prior to that. You know, I had fallen down on the job doing my self exams. Actually, um, I was breastfeeding. So I was constantly feeling my breasts. I wasn't really doing it intentionally with the intention of, looking for lumps. I was, right. I was doing it because I was massaging my breasts to try to 
you know, um, facilitate milk flow. Um, and I had never felt, I had not felt any lumps. And um, one day I was laying down with my husband in bed and, you know, mm -hmm. when you lay down your breast sort of like falls yeah. to the side a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I was laying down and I, and he leaned his head over on my chest and I felt the lump like pressing into my chest wall because he was laying on it. Right. And that's, how I, that's how I found it. Wow. Okay. So another question for you with your family, did y'all have a history of breast cancer or a BRCA gene or anything that you were aware of? Yeah, I did have a strong family history on my father's side. All the women on my dad's side of my family had had breast cancer. Okay. Um, and I had actually talked to a couple of different PCPs about this, mm -hmm. about my personal risk of breast cancer because of that. And right. they had all told me that because it was on my dad's side, that it wasn't uh, mm. a risk, which is completely wrong. That's right. completely wrong. I know that now. Yeah. But at the time, I didn't... Um, think to question it, um, because it was coming from more than one doctor. Um, yeah. and of course, uh, like I said, that was completely wrong. And I later found out that I do have a gene that predisposes me. So when I got my initial, um, genetic testing, nothing huh. came up. And okay. then five years later, uh, they reran my genetic panel because a new gene had been identified, right. the ATM gene. Mm -hmm. And I tested positive for that gene. And that's so, what my doctor was saying. She came one not too long ago. And I think we talked a little bit, you may or may not remember, we talked a little bit about her because she's such an advocate for if you want to be flat. Um, but she mentioned that the last time I had her on about, you know, you should get tested for genetics again, like every so many years, because they're always finding new mutations. And her plight on all of that is that if you've had cancer, she believes you have a mutation somewhere. They just haven't discovered it yet. So particularly that's if you have a family history, there, yeah. there may be something in your genetic makeup that explains that family history. Yeah. And, and it may be that we just haven't found the gene yet. And like mm -hmm. you said, they do find new genes every couple of years and it makes yeah. sense to rerun your genetic panel. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you find this lump. Then of course you go to the doctor. I mean, I'm sure you were probably... I don't know how you felt. How did you feel when you found it? I knew it was bad. Um, okay. It was not the way the lump was shaped and the way it was oriented. It was mm -hmm. not like a normal clogged duct, which would be the other explanation for right. a lump in the breast, you know, under those type of circumstances. Mm -hmm. I knew it was not a clogged duct and it was sort of like fixed to the chest wall a little bit. Oh, okay. So it was bad. It was, it, it had like some bad hallmarks. Um, and I pretty much knew that it was cancer, um, especially given my family history. Right. Um, so because they, cause it didn't move. Cause that's one of the things they say, like it's hard and it's not moving. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it was oriented like mm -hmm. away from the nipple. So not pointing mm -hmm. towards the nipple. So not like a duct, not like a milk duct. Right. Um, so it was just, you know, very suspicious. And so I immediately went to the OB mm -hmm. and got a script for an ultrasound. And of course the ultrasound showed that it was like, you know, a solid mass, not a cyst or a clogged duct right. or anything like that. And then I got the biopsy and the biopsy showed that it was um, stage three, uh, eventually showed that it was stage three cancer, HER2 positive cancer. Wow. Was it ER and PR? Oh, you said HER2 positive. Okay. It was HER2 positive and very mildly ER positive. So I'm on tamoxifen right now because of the ER positive nature of the cancer. Gotcha. Wow. I didn't even know. I don't know what part of your story. I Obviously I missed that part. I didn't know that um, it was stage three. Yeah. And stage th 3A. It was in the nodes and the tumor was huge. I mean, my breasts were very large. I was like a right. 36 double H cup, which most people don't even know that a double H cup even exists. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but the, the, the breasts were so large, they were hiding a huge tumor. I mean, it was like nine centimeters long. Like it was a huge tumor. And that position that you laid made it protrude out. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So your treatment plan, how did that go? Like what happened like during, like you found out you go to the doctor, obviously this was a lot to take in, especially being a mom. I could, I'm just assuming. And then what was your treatment plan? Like, um, I did neoadjuvant chemo, which is chemo before surgery to try to shrink okay. the tumor, um, makes the likelihood of getting clean margins, uh, higher. Okay. And so I did, um, five and a half months of, of chemo. 
Mm-hmm. Um, really harsh chemo, by the way, it put me bedridden for a couple weeks out of every cycle. Oh. It was really, really quite difficult. Um, and then I had the double mastectomy with no reconstruction. And then I had radiation, full, full radiation. Uh, and then I did, uh, another year I completed the year of Herceptin, which you always do with, um, her two positive cancer, you always do okay. Herceptin. And I also did a drug called Pergetta, which is a kind of like Herceptin uh-huh. in that it targets the, her, the, her, uh, protein. Okay. And then I did another year of a drug called Neuralynx, which is another one that's sort of, it's for her two positive cancer. It crosses the blood brain barrier. Um, it's a pill. So I did that for another year and then I'm on tamoxifen for probably 10 years. I was about to ask you because all your, you know, the hormones involved, because I know they told me, and I was, I mean, I was stage zero, but just because of the grade and the positives, ER, PR positive, but the grade of it, they were like, if I would have kept my breast, I would have been up there for like 10 years. So I can only imagine. Okay. So um, you go through that. And then now I'm assuming at this point, and so did you have support that you needed? I know you had your husband, but your family, they were very supportive and everything for you. My saintly mother dropped everything and came, flew out to live with us while I was undergoing chemo and surgery and to take care of my two small children. There is no way that I would have survived, that we would have survived without my mom having done that. I was completely bedridden during chemo. I was, I couldn't think I I had to crawl up the stairs. I was, my blood counts were so low. I could barely even walk for quite a few days out of each cycle. I mean, it was bad, but I will say the chemo killed the cancer because at surgery, I had uh, what was called a complete pathologic response, which means that when they cut out the cancer and chopped Mm -hmm. it up and looked under the microscope, there were yeah. no living cancer cells left. Wow. So the chemo right. had killed all of it. Before you even got the surgery. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So what, and do you remember, was it red devil that you had or? Cause I it always, was a, it was devil. a cocktail called TCHP. So Taxotere, which is a synthetic taxane, mm-hmm. um, kind of like Taxol, except it's a synthetic version of it. So okay. that's the T from TCHP. The C is carboplatin which is a microtubule, uh, obliterating drug. Um, that's okay. a really harsh, it's, that's a really harsh chemo right there. And then the Herceptin and Progetta or the HP. Wow. Those are the two biologic components of that chemo regimen. Okay. Okay. So we get to surgery and I know this is where you go very hard. Um, <laughs> not saying you don't go hard about breast cancer, but like this is just, everybody has an area where we, you know, usually flock to, whether it's being flat, whether it's, you know, drugs, ministration, implants, whatever. But uh, this is this, and I'm gonna let you tell your story about what happened. Now we're at surgery. Now you've had your treatment and all of that. So now we're surgery. So I was, you know, bald like Mm -hmm. puffy from all the steroids from the chemo, you know how it goes. I mean, I was just a total mess. Um, (laughs) But again, but again, invisibly, I was cancer free because of the, of the chemo. So outwardly, I looked like a mess, but inwardly I was, I was fixed. Right. Um, So going into surgery, that was, that was my status. Um, Mm -hmm. I had decided against reconstruction because I wanted to be done in one surgery and just get back to living my life with my kids. I had missed so much of their lives having been bedridden from that stupid chemo that I was, I was so frustrated at that point, having not been able to care for my kids. I mean, the chemo was so harsh that it affected my brain so badly that I couldn't even interact with my kids. Mm-hmm. It was too overwhelming when they would both come at me with their, both of their little voices and their little right. bodies, like clamoring. I mm-hmm. couldn't process it. Like I couldn't, uh, I just couldn't deal with it. Um, mm-hmm. mentally I, I, it was just too hard for me. Um, right. so I had missed a lot. Um, my mom had taken care of them, she had basically become their surrogate mother for the last five and a half months. Wow. So I did not want to deal with any additional surgeries or anything that was going to take me away from them even more. Okay. 
So I had decided against reconstruction and I wanted to be done in one surgery. And in order to achieve that, I brought on a plastic surgeon onto my surgical team mm -hmm. to make sure I got a nice, smooth, flat closure. Right. Um, and that was at the suggestion of my breast surgeon. Um, the breast surgeon who is the cancer surgeon to do the mastectomy, mm -hmm. she had recommended that I bring on a plastic surgeon because I had such large breasts. There was a lot of extra tissue to manage. And a plastic surgeon, of course, is trained to manage that extra tissue and make it look nice. Right. So we brought on a plastic surgeon and this was at Cleveland Clinic. This was at like the, one of the premier hospitals in the, in the nation. Mm -hmm. um, so as I was being wheeled into the OR and being put under uh, anesthesia, I heard the plastic surgeon say, I'll just leave a little extra in case you change your mind. And I was like, in shock. Right. And I said, no, make it flat. Right. And then I made a stupid joke about to the nurses about don't get cancer guys. It sucks. And then I conked out. <laughs> and when I woke up um, and looked under the bandages, it was clear that the plastic surgeon had violated my consent and had left a bunch of extra skin to facilitate implant reconstruction is what he did. So what they do is they leave where the, where the breast meets the chest wall. So mm -hmm. the, imagine the curve of your breast where it meets mm -hmm. the chest wall. There's like a, a little ridge. Right. It's called the inframammary fold. He left that completely intact and left some extra skin uh, to basically a pocket to receive an implant. He had left that on my chest instead of doing a flat closure because he thought I would change my mind. And so I needed an additional surgery in order to fix that in order to be actually flat. And it took me, it took me three, it took me over three years to finally get that revision surgery and fix what he did to me. So, so he totally ignored you and just did what he wanted to do. That's what it seems like to me. Um, yeah. And I know you, you went back and forth to try to get him to, didn't you try to go back and forth to try to get him to correct it? Or you didn't go sit in the office? What I did was, so I had a complication called a persistent seroma, mm -hmm. which is like where fluid collects under the skin and yeah, it, it doesn't go away. It doesn't get reabsorbed. It just keeps collecting. Mm -hmm. So I had to keep going back to this plastic surgeon for my aftercare. And he kept telling me, I didn't leave extra skin it'll tighten up. So he kept lying to my face mm. about what he had done. And I, I was a breast cancer patient. I'd never been through this before. Right. I didn't know, I didn't have definitive proof or prior experience to, to, to prove him wrong. I, all I had was my intuition and what mm. I was seeing with my own eyes on my chest wall. Wow. So I, I, it took me a couple of weeks to fully accept that he was lying. Mm -hmm. And what he had really done to me was, was really a fact of my life now. And that I was actually going to have to get a revision surgery. And mm -hmm. at that point, I just, I got, went to a different plastic surgeon for my aftercare and switched my care over. Okay. Okay. So, because didn't you show him a picture of what you wanted before you even went? Oh, yes. I showed him multiple I thought pictures. That, I thought you did. I also brought my husband as a witness. Mm -hmm. So like. It wasn't just me in the consult room talking about right. wanting a flat closure. It was, my husband was there as well. And I mean, there was no room for miscommunication whatsoever. So what took three years for you to get the revision? Was it the insurances? Were they no, fighting it was, with you? It was just simply the fact that I couldn't stomach dealing with more surgery. Got you. Okay. And, and also just logistically... I, you know, I had been, my, my skin had been irradiated. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I was worried that I was going to have healing complications. And actually I did end up having a complication. So after I got the revision surgery, mm -hmm. I ended up getting a post-op infection and I had to stay in the hospital for a week with IV antibiotics because I, I got such a bad infection. Um, and that was because it was operating on irradiated skin. It's much more likely, you're much more likely to get an infection when you operate on irradiated skin. And do they, is there a reason why? I mean, um, far as that, because some people may not know about like having your skin radiated and the complications with that. It's because irradiated skin is, is scarred and unhealthy tissue. 
it just is, it doesn't bounce back. It doesn't heal the same way that, that healthy tissue does. Okay. So it's yeah, much because, more prone to healing problems and that includes I'm, infection. It takes longer to heal and the longer it takes to heal, the more prone you are to getting an infection. Because I'm finding a lot of people don't know this information at <laughs> all. Like they'll go and like, either they get an implant or, or something, you know, some type of um, reconstruction. And then they're like, I'm having such bad problems, like my skin. And I'm like, did you have radiation? Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, go back and talk to him about that because I'm, yeah. I'm no doctor, but based off what I've heard, what I've researched, it may have everything to do with your skin being damaged from radiation. And yeah. usually they find out it was, and they may have put the implant in too soon where mm-hmm. their skin wasn't properly, you know, healed enough for them to have reconstruction. So thank you for sharing that because a lot of people don't know before they go in um, or maybe they were warned, but didn't realize how severe it was going to be afterwards. Yeah. And there's no way to know in advance which patient is going to have those complications. Mm -hmm. All you can, all you can really know is that you're at an increased risk for it. And so the the key really is to educate patients Mm -hmm. about your risk and you are at an increased risk of healing complications when you have radiation radiation and implant reconstruction do not mix very well right and I think that's the biggest thing is education um well physicians presenting us education would be great but not all the time will they now they tell you that flip sides don't google and it's like well if you're not telling me nothing I'm gonna have to get on the internet I always stress that people get on a good site you know fine because like with your with your website which you're going to get to I'm sure it gives you good information it gives you good places to go to get other all medically medically valid validated vetted information by the way which is important because there is a lot of information out there on the internet which is not medically vetted not (laughs) it's not at all because my doctor gave me specific and specific websites to go to she was like don't go to nothing else but these um so you get this done, you have the reconstruction, and then I know at some point something triggered you and was like, I gotta, this this has to go further than just me. Like I need for people to know. So how did you yeah. get to the advocacy part? Well, so um so after the plastic surgeon did that to me, mm-hmm. um I took it to the hospital administration to complain, to bring it to their attention so that they could make changes in their protocols to prevent that from happening to other patients. Right. So like, in my opinion, you know, somebody in that operating room should have heard that exchange and put a stop to it. Mm -hmm. You can't have a surgeon saying, I'm going to do X and the patient saying no, and then Mm -hmm. nothing happens. Right. That, that, that should never happen. That if the patient says no to something, there should be a protocol triggered that, that triggers something to re- make sure that patient's consent is respected. Right. So, but that didn't happen in my case. Mm-hmm. And so in my mind, like there's a systematic problem there. And so the, ho- mm-hmm. I wanted the hospital to be aware of that, to make sure that what happened to me didn't transpire again with right. another patient. And so I brought it to their attention and it, I spent about a year, um, a full year, uh, trying to, you know, get them to acknowledge what happened mm-hmm. and change their protocols. And I, I failed. Uh, they, they did not acknowledge what happened and they did not change their protocols, at least not to my knowledge, not, mm-hmm. n- not that they ever communicated to me. I think, honestly, you didn't fail. I think... <laughs> I well, think I get what you're saying in that situation, but still trust and believe they, they heard you. I mean, especially you were very, you went in and not, they heard you, you, I'm sure you impacted them, but I get what you're saying as far as the standpoint of what you were trying to achieve. I would like to know what protocol that they changed yeah. in order to make sure that that didn't happen again. I would right. feel, I would, I would feel better if I knew the details about that, but it's a, it's a, it's a, not a transparent process, you know, right. what the hospital, what the hospital does. So, and it's also a matter of like acknowledging malpractice. If they mm-hmm. acknowledge what happened to me, they would be admitting 
to malpractice that happened on their watch. And that's yeah. not something they were willing to acknowledge publicly, which I understand. I understand why they they acted the way they did. But because they decided to do that, I decided to go public with my story. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I did was I staged a sit-in, a topless sit-in in the CEO's office uh, at the end of my year-long like crusade to try to <laughs> get them to you know do the right thing before I sit in the office yeah (laughs) yep that's right I went in there and I said I'm not leaving until the CEO tells me that he's going to do something to protect patients and I took my shirt off and I recorded it on Facebook live and the cops came and dragged me out and then I went and I went on the sidewalk uh the public sidewalk where they couldn't drag me out because it's a public space and I got signs and the local news came and covered it. And then I got on the Today Show and um, Cleveland Clinic decided to call me a liar on the Today Show. So, you know, you, you know, you know, you've made your point when they have to make a yeah. public statement about it like that. And that's why I say you didn't fail, because like they had to come out with something. <laughs> they had to come out and say something because the proof was in the pudding. Like you had your shirt off. You showed them. Yeah, the proof was right on my <laughs> chest. There's no there's no like explaining that away. Yeah. No. And plus, your husband was in the room with you when you said what you wanted. Like you had. Oh, witnesses. yeah. Now, as far as like him putting a mask on your face and he's telling you he's going to, you know, do whatever he wanted to that may be kind of hard to prove because people in the OR could easily say, well, I didn't hear that to kind of yeah. take the heat off of them. Um, but well, it, I wanted them to interview those folks. I wanted yeah. the hospital to go and do an investigation and, and interview mm-hmm. some of the people that were in the operating room and they didn't want to do it. Yeah. Now that could be that they were scared that somebody was going to tell the truth. Who knows, but for you to- Well, and surgeons have a lot of power uh, Mm -hmm. within the workplace that they work at. They have a lot of power and nobody wants to go against a surgeon openly. And I get it, I I get it. But when we're talking about patient's consent, that is important enough that I felt the need to take a, a further step- Right. To make sure that this was not swept under the rug. Yeah. So when you went on, you've you've made this public and then did you start, did you start an organization? Were you a part of an organization for like, how did not putting on a shirt come about? Well, my friend Amanda um, helped me start the organization Um, after, shortly after I started protesting, Amanda convinced me that what was really needed was a nonprofit because we were going to need, in order to do the work that we were going to need to do. I had been talking to her about what needed to happen, like the the Women's Health and Cancer Rights Act, uh, the federal legislation needed to be amended. There was other things that needed to happen. Right. Um, The things that needed to happen were going to be require some funds. Mm -hmm. And in order to raise money for that, we needed to be able to get tax free donations. And in order to do that, we needed to found a nonprofit. And there was other reasons to found a nonprofit too. just, um, you know. So that was why we ended up founding Not Putting on a Shirt. And I think the getting on the Today Show really helped propel us into the public eye. And I can thank Catherine Guthrie for that because she wrote her, she wrote the uh, the article in Cosmopolitan Magazine about flat denial. Okay. And it featured my story along with the stories of a couple of other women who had experienced similar things Mm -hmm. and, and really illustrated that I wasn't alone and that this happens all the time and um that it's a systemic problem that really needs to be addressed mm-hmm. and so her story was a big part of why we were able to get the attention that we got right and that's so true because i don't know if anybody know what well, everybody should know this because i put your name out there along with renee's y'all really were the reason why i got in the women's health magazine um so and I appreciate that because hopefully I don't start crying. I got so I cry all the time after I had cancer. Oh, I know. Me um, too. <laughs> I feel, yeah. Does it change our DNA or something? But, yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, I thank you for that because when I did it, I was nervous. However, the nervousness went away because I felt it was an assignment. And when you all came to me, I was a little taken. I was like, maybe it's the independent women's 
<laughs> I was like, it's not the women's health magazine, not the real one, but maybe so, but who cares? Um, but it really was. And um, it wasn't about me. I felt like, just like this is called our scars speak. It's about us. Yeah. It's about everyone. It's about people who may not ever be in a magazine. It's about the, the sisters and the brothers um, that have transitioned and they're no longer with us. Like it's so much bigger than just being on a magazine or whatever. It's a, it's a mission. It's something that we have to do. It's our part of our assignment now. And when you were talking about Cosmopolitan, it's so true because those articles, I, I mean, I don't know. I've been on some new stuff, but those articles, I don't know if it's because you can send the article to something. You can send people news clips too, but those articles are pivotal, especially they with are. the pictures and everything. Yeah. Um, so that was when I really, I was like, okay, that's when things start rolling. Even on my, you know, my end, I'm like, okay, th here's this article. Let's see, you know, and let me start pushing it everywhere. And so that way, even if somebody was like, oh, no, we don't want your story. You're going to read it though. At least you're going to see that picture and it's yeah. got to stay with you in your head. So <laughs> yeah. So that's good. I didn't, I didn't know that part. I knew I had seen you on the today show, but I didn't know about the, um, that particular magazine article. Yeah. Catherine did a, an amazing job with that cosmopolitan article. If you want to learn more about flat denial, I highly recommend it. Yeah. I'll definitely go check that out. I had seen all your other stuff. I don't know how that one slipped past me, but yeah. So you get, you get this started, you get the nonprofit started. And so I guess this is more now we've already talked about before, during, and so now what is life like, and what are you doing in your life? Um, whatever you like to share. Um, well, so in the advocacy work or in my personal life, it doesn't matter whatever you want to share, but I do want you to share advocacy too, but yes, well, I can, I'll start with the advocacy work since <laughs> that's more interesting. Uh, my, my personal life is pretty mundane. Um, <laughs> so in the advocacy work, let's see, what are we doing? So we got, um, we recently, I'll just, I'll just recap the recent successes that we had. So firstly, yeah. in 2020, we got the National Cancer Institute to adopt the term aesthetic flat closure to um, put that in their dish dictionary of cancer terms. And that's been really pivotal because now mm -hmm. patients have clear language to discuss their expectations with their surgeons. And also it gives legitimacy to the whole, to the movement to mm -hmm. have a medical term that is an affirmative term. So we, we can actually, we can say, this is what we mean when we say what we want. Right. We want a smooth, flat chest wall with all extra skin removed. It's clearly mm -hmm. defined by a, by a legitimate third party. And we can point to that definition and say, this is what we want. Right. And everybody agrees on that definition. So <clears throat> that was really important and a huge win for the movement when that happened. Um, wow. And I was really happy to see that happen. So And what year that was, was that again? Win. That was in 2020. The reason why I asked, because 2019, when I got diagnosed with cancer, I had gone to my doctor and I was like, because I had heard about aesthetic flat um, a little yeah. bit later. I had already had my surgery and I asked her, she's like, what? And because obviously it wasn't, it wasn't known, you know, it wasn't yeah. in there yet. A big part of our work is spreading the word about that. Right. So I was like, and it was before I kind of like really met you all, but I was like, oh no, some ladies I know on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some ladies I know on social media, like they're really flat, like everything is flat. And she was like, do you want it like contoured? So she used different terminology, but it meant the same, but it yeah. was because it hadn't been in their medical book yet. But right. fast forward, the interview I did with her, she was blasting aesthetic everywhere because now yeah. it's more. So yeah. So thank you so much for that. Yeah, we were, we were overjoyed to see that um, on the books and it's been extremely helpful ever since. Um, like plastic surgeons in particular are starting to put it on their websites that it's a service that they offer. Um, even breast surgeons are, are starting to advertise that it's a service that they offer. And it's, it's wonderful to see that happening because it's starting to put aesthetic flat closure on, on par with reconstruction in a way that it wasn't before because there was no way to refer to it. Right. There was no, there was no name for it. It's kind of mm -hmm. like sexual, the sexual harassment of the 1960s. Did it, did sexual harassment exist right. before there was a name for it? Well, it did exist, but it couldn't be discussed because there was no way that there was no name for it. Right. So that's, it was kind of the same thing with aesthetic flat closure. So that, right. that was a big step awesome. forward for the movement. So that was really big. And then in 2021, 
Mm -hmm. uh, the New York State Legislature passed uh, a law with the help of advocates, um, including us and a bunch of a couple of advocates from uh, from New York, um, that requires insurance companies to cover the cost of aesthetic flat closure services. Mm -hmm. So that was a big deal. Um, and New York State, we're hoping that that will happen in other states as well. We've got a couple of uh, other states in the works right now. Great. Um, what else has happened? We're working with, um, well, I'm not sure how much I can talk about this, but there's a, there's a couple of other research projects in the works. Um, okay. So there have been a couple of research studies um, published. There was one recently that was published about um, the patient experience with going flat that was um, pretty important just to start right. to characterize what's important to patients going flat right? and why they make the decision that they do um, okay. and that they're satisfied with their decision and, and that it's important for surgeons to support, to give that information and to support mm -hmm. their patient's decision. Um, That's major. Yeah, that was important. Uh, what else? And I know Stantall is a part of under... Yes. Stantall started in 2021, I, be mm -hmm. I believe. God, I maybe so. it was before then. Uh, I'm trying to remember. This is my <laughs> this is my brain fog coming into play here. Stantall has been going for about three or four years now. So Stantall is a visibility campaign that um, where we encourage women to participate in breast cancer awareness walks mm -hmm. and um, represent visibility for aesthetic flat closure, right. either by wearing um, shirts that represent flat or mm -hmm. by taking off their shirts and walking shirtless mm -hmm. and um, representing flat in that way. So um, that's uh, that's Stantall AFC, the, the visibility campaign. And okay. not putting on a shirt is really happy to work with Stantall. Um, oh, that's great. For the last so, couple of years. Yeah. So talk a little bit about your uh, website so people know, if you don't mind. Sure. So notputtingonashirt.org is our informational website. We have uh, some information about um, going flat at initial mastectomy, uh, explant, and revision surgery. We also have a page on flat denial for victims of flat denial, which is when your surgeon leaves extra mm -hmm. skin against your consent. Like that's what happened to me. That's called flat denial. We have a flat-friendly surgeon's directory with over 580 now um, patient-recommended surgeons who have a proven track record, excuse me, a proven track record of flat closure skills for those different skills, including Goldilocks mastectomy, yeah. um, which is a kind of a middle ground between flat and reconstruction. Mm -hmm. So you can search for that uh, on the directory. Uh, we have a photo gallery of uh, all those different ones. So we have it segregated by mastectomy, explant, and revision. So you can download photos that, to show your doctor uh, what of people that look like you, that, you know, where you might, so you can see what you might look like mm -hmm. and show your doctor what you expect and what scar patterns you might, you know, you might be interested in. Yeah. Um, what else? You have one that I use a lot. Well, I, I use your website a lot to show, <laughs> to show people. It's a pretty um, extensive website. There's a lot of it. But I'd let them know like, okay, there's a lot here, but based off what you're looking for, go here first and then go back and kind of explore it. But mm -hmm. a lot of areas that I send them is, are the pictures and yeah. the pictures and the memorializing of your breast, because mm. to me, a lot of, you know, that that's sig significant for a lot of women like to take pictures or to mold their yeah. breasts before they get the surgery and stuff. Yeah. We have, we have information about living, about preparing for surgery. Mm -hmm. And the memorializing of your breasts, there's some suggestions on there for doing that. That's part of the preparing for surgery page. Um, there's also like a checklist for what you, you might want to bring to the hospital and things like that and what you need to do to prepare. Um, there's also a living flat page uh, with information about prosthetics, body mm -hmm. image and sexuality, um, things like that, uh, fashion tips, things like that. Um, all about all about living flat after mastectomy. And then we also have um, brochures that you can order mm -hmm. or print out. So you can order or print them out to bring to your consultation to help you um, communicate with your surgeon about what you want. Right. Um, or, you know, after your surgery, you can bring them to your surgeon and say, look, 
uh, this would be helpful for your patients as a form of advocacy. You can, right. you can participate in advocacy by doing that. Yeah. I've, um, every event that I have to go to, well, you know, cause I always like, can I use your brochure? Cause I yeah. always put them out, um, on a table with, you know, organizations that I feel like I really know, and I have been around for a while. I definitely share their information. I always have y'all's information up there. And a lot of people are instantly like, what's that? And half of them, some of them don't even have cancer, but they're like, I know a friend that's getting ready to have surgery. Like, what's that information? I've never seen this before. Just because of the representation on that brochure, it just attracts people to even just pick it up and look at it and take it to give it to a friend. So I, I just want to give a shout out to the woman on the cover of that brochure. Her name is Fia. She's from, right. um, oh God, now where, where is she from? She's from, she's in Europe. <laughs> oh, is she? Yes. Yeah. Oh, wow. She's the woman on the cover of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Flat Norman is the name of her organization. Flat what? I'm sorry. Flat Norman is Flat the name Norman. of her organization. Okay. Right. Yeah. I can't remember what, I can't remember the country that they're from now. It's again, the brain fog is, it's making me, it's making me okay. not remember the, the name of the country. Um, but yeah, she's, um, she, she runs, she's, she helps run that organization, Platt Norman. It's, it's an, it's a flat advocacy organization in her country. Oh, okay. And that's good too. Just spreading the word everywhere because I found, and I'm sure you have with extensive research, not every country has the same treatment as the United States. Um, and then some places have yeah. some things that we don't have, but it's just like very interesting to share that information abroad. Yeah, there's there's different struggles in different countries. Like right. in some countries, it's really hard to get a second mastectomy, like to take off the healthy breast. It's like a big ordeal that they have to go through. Like in the UK, it's very difficult to get the second mastectomy sometimes um in in the in the united states we have the the women's health and cancer rights act which guarantees symmetry surgery but that's not true in the uk and flat advocates in the uk are working really hard on getting that changed right now wow. that's sad so it's a it's a global movement to improve the standard of care for women yeah and, and the sad part is i think what frustrated me even when i was in between surgeries before i got um the expanders taken out Mm -hmm. COVID hit. So I couldn't get it taken out because, you know, they shut everything down. Yeah. And what made me mad was the fact that my body, because I had capsular contractor and breast implant illness, it was actually pushing these things out of my chest mm -hmm. and they couldn't even do an emergency surgery because they were like, it is considered um, cosmetic. Oh, that's so infuriating. And I'm like, are you serious? So I can imagine I was like, okay, even though this is COVID stopping things, because my surgeon would have definitely operated on me. Um, if it wasn't COVID, so that's how you see us. And it's like, I didn't ask for cancer. I would have been yeah. just happy with my, <laughs> with my breasts. Like no one asked to go through this. So yeah. to put us even in that bracket, it infuriated him. It made me mad. Cause I'm yeah. like, this isn't something I wanted to do. Well, it, it diminishes, it diminishes our agency yes. to treat us in that manner where our reconstructive choice is, is a second class choice, you know, yep. going flat is less than it's, it's cosmetic instead of reconstructive. And th this right. is one reason why the women's health and cancer rights act needs to be updated to reflect, um, the reality that many women now are going flat. In fact, going, the rate of going flat has actually increased since it 2016, yep. especially yep. in women under age 50, um, data just came out on that. So it's, it's a choice that women are increasingly making, and that needs to be reflected in the legislation, um, that it's not cosmetic. It right. is a valid choice that women are making. And, and a lot of women are explanting to flat. That's a mm -hmm. huge population of women that are underserved because the, the legislation is outdated. Yeah. It's, it's so sad. So outside of advocacy, is there anything else that you want to share or about advocacy? Anything you want to share about your now and how life is going now? Anything you want to share with us? I mean, not necessarily personal. If you don't want to, that's fine. But anything you want people to know that's coming up or where they can find you or anything about yourself that you want them to know? Um, you can find us on social media at not putting on a shirt. Um, and you can find us on the, on the web at not putting on a shirt.org. So it's pretty, pretty simple to find us. 
Um, we're always looking for volunteers. We're always looking for donations. Um, we're always looking for folks to distribute brochures. If you're interested in joining, joining the movement, um, distributing brochures to your doctor is an easy way to do that. So, right. you know, hit me up at notputtingonashirt.org. Okay. So you had us all because you gave me pictures for real, which was beautiful. Oh, yeah. I love that picture with your tattoo. Was that in the Cosmopolitan? Was that in Cosmopolitan? Or no, that- I got the tattoo after my revision. So the Cosmopolitan article happened before my revision surgery. So, okay. I, I, let me give a shout out to my tattoo artist, Ryan yeah. Clark. Ryan was Clark it- in Pittsburgh. Okay. He did an amazing job on my tattoo and tattoos are a huge part of healing for a lot of women. So that's something a lot of women don't know about. It's not covered by insurance to get a decorative tattoo, unfortunately, but there's a great organization called Personal Inc. that they do an annual event where um, artists give free mastectomy, decorative mastectomy tattoos, Personal Inc. Check it out. Okay, great. I will definitely check that out because your tattoo, I was like, that is a beautiful picture. Oh my God. Oh, and the way you. you're standing and then just like how it's going down is so beautiful. So I was thanks. thankful you gave me that to put in the reel. Um, so you chose a particular song, a particular artist. Now that was a little challenging as far as the artist when it came to the reel because I was trying to find the name. So I found his name, but then it kept on putting him with this other person. Um, oh Yeah. Uh, and I was like, shucks, I hope she don't get upset because this is all I can do. That's okay. Um, but yeah, uh, the words are beautiful. So do you, can you tell us the name of the song, the artist, and why you chose that particular song? So I believe I chose Brothers in Arms yep. by Mark Knopfler. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a song about a soldier dying on a battlefield. I'm going to get all verklempt now. Um, okay. And he's hoping that someday everyone will get along right so as much as I am sort of a confrontational advocate (laughs) um you know I I protest on the street I did a topless sit-in you know my preference is to collaborate Mm -hmm. and what I want is I want what's best for patients and I think that's what everybody wants. Mm-hmm. And I think there are a few, there are a few surgeons who have sort of uh, gone wrong, made a few bad decisions. And I think that they can be redeemed and they can always choose the right thing. Mm. So I think there's always a path to redemption for everyone. And um, I hope that they you know, anyone that's listening to this podcast or anyone that any surgeon who has in the past made the wrong decision for their patient, I want them to know that it, it's never too late to make the right choice. That's beautiful. That is so beautiful. Yeah. Cause forgiveness is a thing and we can forgive and mm-hmm. they can be redeemed. We just yeah. ask that you do the right thing. That's right. My people. So it's never I- too late. Yep. I kind of had a feel when I heard the song, I was like, oh, wow, this is beautiful. And then I thought about, first I thought about my husband in the military because he's retired Marine. But then, um, and I was like, that's where I heard it from, like one of their gatherings. But then I thought about us in the breast cancer community and how we link up. Um, We may not always agree. We may not always, uh, one person may be more stronger in one area as far as advocacy than the other, but at the end of the day, come together. It doesn't have to be that way. Come together within the community, as well as, like you said, fighting for the rights of the um, patient, but there's still forgiveness. There's still forgiveness and redemption. That's so beautifully said. Yeah. And is there a word that you would like to leave the audience something to encourage them as they're going through somebody out there may have a wound that hasn't developed into a scar yet and they're healing and, or someone may have have a scar that they look at every day and it makes them very, very sad or depressed. Do you have a word to kind of give a person to maybe hang on to, um, as they look at their scars or they look at their wounds and they're trying to heal? Boy, this is a tough one. I've thought about it a lot. And I think the word I would come keep coming back to is trust. Trust yourself. So you are your own best advocate and no one is going to do that job for you better than you can. You know yourself best. You know your, your best interests. It is, it's your job 
to advocate for your, your, your best interest and you, your intuition about your own health and safety has to be paramount and you should always listen to it. If you are in a consult with a surgeon and you're not quite feeling right, you're not feeling heard, get a second opinion. Mm -hmm. And you're not doing anything wrong by doing that. You're not insulting the surgeon. What you're doing is you're respecting yourself. You're respecting your, your, you're honoring your own right to health and safety. Um, and so trust yourself, trust your intuition. Okay. And so I usually say a word that I'm gonna leave people, but usually ends up being a statement. <laughs> but yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, when I, when I think of you from the time that I've seen you till this day, <clears throat> I think of, so you have advocates that may be less confrontational than some that are confrontational, but the point of the matter is what I see is your heart at the end of the day. I see that you are trying your hardest to not just be heard from your standpoint, but for everyone to be heard. And that takes a level of boldness that a lot of people are not willing to exhibit. And sometimes it does take stepping on people's toes. Um, sometimes it does take risking it all. And it goes along with what you were put on this earth to do. That may not be everybody's lane, but for you, that is your lane. That, that, that level of boldness is for you and for whomever comes alongside of you, that this is what we're going to do. We're not going to deviate from it. This is what we're doing. And I think with that, I just want to say to continue on, continue to, as you pour out, allow people to pour in, regardless if it's the same ideology or not, just be, be open. Like I've known you to be, be open to receive and be open to continue to collaborate and continue to walk in that boldness that's on you that everybody doesn't have and not everyone will understand but long as it sets right in your heart then continue to push forward that's great advice so that's all I have to say but this was so great um I really enjoyed you coming up here and hopefully you'll visit again <laughs> I'd be happy to come on again <laughs> yeah especially keeping us updated because I know things are constantly changing um and we want to help facilitate that change as well here at Our Scar Speak. So great. Thanks yeah. for having me on, Christina. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. So this is the end of Our Scar Speak. And remember that our scars speak a story. Our mental and our physical scars speak a story that must be told. So know that we love you and we hope to see you again next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Our Scars Speak, and we hope you can join us again real soon. Meanwhile, remember that our mental and physical scars speak a story that can help heal the wounds of another.